Just a word of caution, this podcast does contain material related to sexual assault, which could be upsetting to some listeners. Please make sure you're emotionally resourced and seek help from a trauma specialist or medical professional if you need it. I'm begging the government to see us, believe us, like say that we matter again. Tell it to me straight, don't leave out a word, don't leave out anything you think I should have heard. Hi, and welcome to Slut or Nut, the podcast. I'm Kelly Shoker, and I'm the director of Slut or Nut, The Diary of a Rape Trial, which is a feature-length documentary film exploring what it is like to report rape and following activist Mandy Gray as she fights to change how victims of sexual assault are treated by the criminal justice system. We decided to call the film Slut or Nut, The Diary of a Rape Trial and the podcast Slut or Nut, the podcast We decided to call it Slutternut as a way to reclaim and take back the stereotypes that people tend to have about victims of sexual assault. Number one, that they are promiscuous and that somehow they invited the assault. And number two, that they're mentally unstable and maybe making false claims about the assault or just seeking attention. We are also acknowledging that sexuality is an important part of every woman's health and life and You know, you can have as many sexual partners as you want, as long as it's consenting and healthy for all the parties involved. So if you want to be a slut, be a slut. And also mental health is a real issue that people do deal with, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just something that we all as a community need to find ways to support people that are struggling with mental health issues. And that's just a part of life. And most of us will either struggle ourselves or know someone who's struggling. So Slut or Nut is our way to acknowledge this and also to say that regardless of your sexuality or any mental health struggles you do have, no one deserves to be raped. And with that, let's get to talking to our guest today, Miss Deb Singh, and I'll let her tell you a little more about her work. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, before we get started, uh, just to get it out of the way, do I have con- your consent to record this call to be used in the Slut or Nut, the Diary of Rape Trial, the podcast, uh, in all or part of the conversation? Yes. Okay, thank you so much. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Deb Singh, and I work at the Toronto Rape Crisis Centre, Multicultural Women Against Rape, here in Toronto. Uh, I've been working here as a counsellor and activist for the last 12 years, and I started off as a crisis line counsellor volunteer and front desk volunteer about 15 years ago. Uh, Here at the Rape Crisis Centre, we do different kinds of work. Of course, people might understand a rape crisis center is where survivors come after they've experienced sexualized violence. Uh, we support anybody who's experienced sexualized violence, so that's uh, cisgender men, women, trans folks, non-binary folks, uh, youth. Uh, and we do a couple of different areas of support work. So you'll see we do frontline work. We have a 24-hour crisis line. We're all face-to-face counselors here. We accompany people to court supports and accompaniments, uh, appointments that they need support around that may uh, have to do with their sexualized experience of sexualized violence. And then we obviously do 
stuff around fundraising, public education, workshops. Uh, of course, we do support groups as well. That would be in our frontline uh, piece. And then finally, we want to eradicate uh, sexualized violence. We don't want to just educate about it or prevent it. We want to end it. So we do activism. We have one of the things we do of the many things we do uh, is we've been hosting uh, Take Back the Night Toronto for the last 39 years. So that is a very small nutshell of what we do here at the Toronto Rape Crisis Centre Multicultural Men Against Rape. Wow, that's a long time, 39 years. That's amazing. Um, and, I'm imagine, yeah. and I'm imagining the centre has been around for even longer. Yes, we're, 40, we're celebrating our 45th birthday this February. So the centre is 45 years old. Yeah. Could you maybe walk us through... Um, what it would be like for somebody if they just came in the front door of your center and unfortunately if they had been uh, recently sexually assaulted, like what kind of experience would they have coming in? I can absolutely do that, but that's not a typical situation. That's what people think is a typical situation. You know, one thing that people know for sure is included in sexualized violence is after we talk about it to someone, we experience shame. Even before we talk about it with someone, we experience some sort of messaging in the world that says, hey, it was your fault, or you shouldn't talk about it, or you should keep quiet about it, or you should ignore that gut feeling that told you what happened that day was wrong and not okay. And so actually, it's really, really hard for survivors to walk through our doors. So it, it isn't something that just people just do two days after sexually assaulted. It's a huge process to get to us. I think what's more typical is people experience sexualized violence and they don't talk about it with anybody for an amount of time. Some folks, it's 20 years. Some folks, it's like a month or two days, you know. Uh, What happens is people often, when they've experienced sexualized violence, uh, they, they don't, quote unquote, do anything. They go home and they take a shower and they freak out a little bit. Sometimes people call us on our 24-hour crisis line two days or three days after, uh, partially to ask questions like, I was sexually assaulted, like, where do I go get testing? I was sexually assaulted, like, should I call the police? And so that's our, usually our first point of contact if someone has been, quote-unquote, recently assaulted. And that you decide what it recent is because um, a lot of folks, they, they don't reach us until they're really experiencing the mental, emotional, social, or physical impacts of, of, sexual, of rape or sexual, sexual assault. And so they'll call the crisis line after a certain period of time. And one of the things they might include in that call is I told my friend, or I told my mom, or I told my boyfriend, and they didn't believe me. And this created it, it made it really hard to reach out again, you know? So people, when we've experienced sexualized violence, it's the rape crisis center isn't necessarily the first place you think of because you've experienced trauma, right? So the first thing you think of is surviving and getting through it and like taking care of yourself. Like there's a lot of shock that comes with an experience of sexual assault or rape. So I could answer your question, um, but that's not how people really access us. You know, it takes a lot, a lot of times people call us and they want us to validate that they've been assaulted because they feel like it was their fault or they asked for it somehow or that are they are I'm not sure if I was assaulted. I was drugged and I was like half conscious 
or I was drugged and I was completely unconscious and I woke up naked and there were all these clues that told me I was assaulted and my memories all, you know, so that, that actually is more typical than someone coming in after they've been recently assaulted and figured out how to get to us physically. And then because walking through our doors, it's like, um, I can't speak for all survivors, of course, but it's hard. And it's like, it's like naming that it really happened to you. So actually people call our front desk before they reach us, generally speaking, try to get to see a counselor, uh, which we have a waiting list for that. Uh, we have a bunch of counselors here. It varies because we have staff and we have, we're always um, training volunteers to be uh, face-to-face uh, counselors and to take on people on our waiting list. Uh, but off, more often than not, people are calling our 24-hour crisis line as their first point of contact when they're reaching the rape crisis center. You know, that really makes perfect sense because, um, I, I mean, I myself, after I was sexually assaulted, took years to talk about it, much less never, I mean, never thought to call anybody or any kind of institution. Um, and, yeah, it's so confusing. It's a very confusing experience and I always like hope I guess that people that other people or have this idea that like other women are going out and like getting help now because things have changed from when I was young um but I guess things Mm -hmm. yeah but I guess things really haven't changed that much I think survivors callers humans are dynamic and amazing they're certainly and I think that we've trained our our 24-hour crisis line volunteers to be as dynamic and amazing. And so when folks call, some folks just, you know, I mean, when you've experienced sexualized violence and you, you know, on our crisis line, you can call about anything for any reason. You don't have to disclose whether or not you've experienced sexual assault, but because we have a dynamic understanding that all these things relate back to our experiences of trauma and violence. So you could be upset about something that happened with your friend, or you could be upset about your landlord being a douche, or because all those things actually relate to the impacts we have experienced around sexualized violence, right? So, you know, you could be experiencing, uh, you could have experienced sexual assault, but right now you're dealing with your partner who's doing your, uh, you know, application for permanent status in Canada and there's complications in your relationship and, you know, all these things can be connected, right? And so it's very important for us to see like all things as connected versus like, this is the only way, very narrow way we identify crisis, right? So we say that survivors are the ones who identify crisis and that we support whatever you are calling about. So there's that one piece. The other piece is that, you know, we um, we can't solve problems, right? We're here to support. And I think that there is this very, like, clear narrative in the world of, like, you have a problem, let's solve it. But when we know that there's what the problem is, the impacts, and experiences of trauma and how it lands in our life. Uh, sometimes we just need somebody to listen. Sometimes we need somebody to offer us resources or referrals. Sometimes we need somebody to be our mirror or to give us back what we're saying in a different way. Uh, sometimes we need to continue this kind of dynamic of like a crisis call in a more in-depth way, like a getting a counselor and having more support in an ongoing sort of way. So these are the different kinds of specific things that crisis line counselors might do on the crisis line. But the, the biggest thing is that 
survivors, we are the best experts of our lives. We've been doing a ton of things to get ourselves support before we ever called a crisis line. And we will certainly be doing stuff to support ourselves after we hang up that phone. And so we're here in this small, small blip of a survivor's healing journey. And so here we are acknowledging that and supporting whatever we can do in that moment. And so sometimes, and survivors are very good at telling us what they need. Sometimes they just want to, you know, talk and just let it be heard and be listened to and not be judged. Sometimes they want information. Sometimes they want referrals. And, and, you know, as we know right now, because of these many, many different things that have happened in the last two years in the Ontario context, and I'm speaking about uh, high-profile cases like Giango Meshi, but then, of course, beyond in the North American context like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or whatever, because of, of North American movements like hashtag me too, or, or hashtag times up or whatever. People are talking about women. People are talking about sexualized violence. People are talking about harassment at the workplace, like in, in, in way different ways than I've seen in my 20 years of doing gender-based violence work in Toronto. And so we've hugely seen an influx of people wanting to access our crisis line services and our face-to-face counseling services. In fact, I've had verbal confirmation from two of the workers here who have been here for uh, just under 30 years, and they said they've never seen a waiting list be as long as it, it is right now in 30 years of them working here. So that speaks to something very big that's beyond like our our work as humans and counselors and activists here at the Rape Crisis Center. It speaks to like a narrative that is like fundamentally changing around survivors wanting support because they feel that there are more able to talk about sexualized violence because they're going to be less judged or it's less stigmatized to talk about it or to name that it's happened to them and to like try to access support. I think it's an amazing step forward and I'm so happy that it's happening. But then, you know, the government and society has to respond to that need. Um, And from what I, I, from what I gather, the, uh, our institutions are not catching up to the demand uh, the way that women need them to. And when I say institutions, I don't mean your center. I mean our government institutions. Yeah. I mean, I'll say from the jump that when the government gives you money, they tell you what to do with it. So we're not really about that. And so the unrestricted monies that we get from like individual donors or fundraisers, that's money we can devote in a different way to survivors uh, because we have more power to, to direct it ourselves, you know, like, um, so it can be really amazing when we don't have as many parameters around what we're allowed to do with our funding because it doesn't come from the government, you know, at the same time, the government has like the most money. You can't ask people every day, all day for money because uh, individuals are amazing, but that's a lot of work. And, you know, they're tapped out as individual people or, or, or small groups or whatever, right? And so, um, you know, speaking to uh, the fact that there's, been, you know, this huge influx in conversation, media coverage uh, around sexualized violence and sexual assault and rape. And therefore, in turn, there's a ton of survivors who are sometimes more courageous to talk about it openly, but a lot more times super triggered and want to talk to somebody who believes them and understands. And so they're reaching out more. Uh, you know, the, the liberal government between 2015 
and 2018 had a huge, uh, let me say heart, let me start with that, around the issue of sexual violence and gender-based violence. And so in 2015, the liberal government gave us an increase, gave rape crisis centers across Ontario an increase through the Sexual Violence Action Plan. However, that wasn't a lot of money. It, was, it certainly wasn't enough to hire one person. So we stretched that money. We were able to do things with that money, but it did not make a significant change around anything, whether it was our waiting list or our crisis line or whatever. So it did not make a day-to-day change for survivors in Toronto. I say that. The increase itself, I think one of our, our fundraising people did the math and they said it was a one cent increase for every Torontonian, uh, the, the monies that the, the provincial government at the time in 2015, the Liberals, gave in the Sexual Violence Action Plan. It was a one cent increase for all Torontonians. So it's not much, right? What can you do with one cent per person? Nothing. So, uh, but it was a step forward in a good way. Three years later, March 2018, the government gets that. Their action plan was good, but it doesn't do anything if survivors are waiting and waiting and waiting, like even more longer wait times than ever before, because we have blown up this this collective conversation in the province and in North America and Canada uh, about sexualized violence. And now they know for sure survivors are waiting gratuitous amounts of time for like to get support on a crisis line, to get support face to face with a counselor, and it's like ridiculous. We don't we don't need it to be that way. So. March 2018, the Liberals promised uh, organizations um, across sectors, so not just sexualized violence, but like also intimate partner violence, also like health, uh, health ministries and healthcare, uh, and across different ministries and cabinets within the Ontario government. So not just the Ministry of Attorney General, but also the Ministry of Community and Social Services, healthcare, because they saw that this sexual violence and intimate partner violence, gender-based violence, was a complex issue that crossed many different areas. So they understood that in a dynamic way. And that was the first time government had ever done that. And the first time a government had ever seen it this way and planned it out this way. And of course, that was help. That was with help from the roundtable against violence against women. So when they made the announcement for our funding increase in March 2018, it was revolutionary. It was the first time that crisis centers across Ontario had ever seen a 30% increase in their core funding ever in the history of their existence. <laughs> so that was a huge thing for survivors. You know, it was a huge thing for the government top down to say, hey. Your experience of sexual violence matters to us. We don't think you should wait for have wait times, and we don't think that once you've experienced sexual violence, you should go through what you're, you're currently going through. And, and so that was a huge way that the government could not just quote unquote give us money, but it also changed a collective consciousness. Like everyone had to care now that this was happening. That the government from the top down is talking about this, doing education, making sexual assault and, and gender-based violence action plans around this. Like there was a lot of work done um, at that time. And I think that the, the, the reflection from rape crisis centers was this is good work, you know, because it didn't just add money to and value to our work in terms of like money value. 
It also, the government said that survivors matter. Sexual violence is a thing. It's real. It's, uh, you know, we should believe survivors and we shouldn't be letting them wait after they've experienced sexual violence. Like there was all of that. So there's a public education, please, a, a definition, redefining sexual violence in the mind of Ontarians and then money attached to it. Right. So that was, that was a huge thing that happened uh, oh. last year. I'm holding my breath waiting for Trump to say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're going to suffocate, right? Because, yeah. like, unfortunately, the current government don't believe any of that. And, in fact, um, they all have either allegations against them of sexual assault and or hire and work with people who have uh, allegations of sexual misconduct, sexual assaults in their cabinets slash, you know, working with them in their close ranks of political work that they do, so-called, you know? So it's just one voting, you know, so in just one vote, and I mean, I can only speak to a specific Ontario context, but, uh, you know, June shifted this narrative so sickeningly, and whoever voted for DOFO I don't know what they believe around sexualized violence, but it's very, I know what DOFO believes is very antithetical to what the liberal government did in their four years, in their eight years of tenure around sexualized violence. You know, they basically crumpled up all their work and thrown it in the, oh, it's not just one step back, I would say. I mean, because again, you don't, it's been scandal after scandal with the DOFO government right now. We just got rid of, what was that Wilson guy? Uh, Minister of Economic Development, job job creation, and he was it, it was hidden. It was it was a he left for drug reasons of drug abuse or drug or substance use, but really it was sexual misconduct um, allegations against him, and that's why he stepped down. So again, like more there's so and there's so much more of that within the government. So it's clear that they don't really care about survivors. Never mind that they actually use their power to use sexual sexualized violence against folks uh they he has a clear understanding of what he thinks of women and children you know i mean it's pretty clear in many of the choices he's made so we're actually the the start of last year march you know me and my my co-worker were at the press conference that day and we heard what this increase might mean for our individual center but of course for all rape centers across Ontario, 44 in total. And we cried because it was unprecedented, because it was revolutionary, because it literally meant like there was a lightness taken off of our backs that we've been wearing, you know, as workers, as survivors ourselves. And then now you have June and now you have like, you know, where we are now, uh, which has been like argument and fight and meeting after meeting, trying to get this money that the liberals promised us. Um, and still not having an answer, still not even being directly addressed by the Minister of Attorney General, Caroline Mulroney. So it's just been, a, you know, there was this validation, this like amazing recognition of survivors by the top, the lead of government of Ontario. And then now it's been like, poof, the exact opposite, complete unacknowledgement, lack of recognition, and tons of allegations on part of the party itself, right? 
Oh, it's disheartening. <laughs> what what yeah, are Yeah, it's really super depressing. What kind of wait times are survivors looking at now? Because I know one thing when we when I was uh, working on Slutter Nut the movie, when we were filming, uh, one of the things that shocked me the most was how few of um, sexual assault evidence kit nurses there were working in Toronto and in the GTA. And I mean, this is a city of like, I think six million in the, in the greater Toronto area. And it was like one one nurse was on call at night in downtown Toronto to do that, to do the sexual assault evidence kit. And I was just blown away. And then the police were also seemed to be really under-resourced um, in that area. So I imagine that counseling, and I know when we're filming the movie, it was also like, I think, six-week wait to get even your first session and then there was a wait after and that was at the hospital for counseling and then there was a wait after that to get additional sessions then you could only have a certain number of sessions so for your center what are you guys looking at in terms of what um, the kind of barriers that survivors are facing in terms of accessing counseling Yeah, so at this point, as mentioned, it's the longest wait time we've ever experienced in the last 30 years, and it's approximately 15 to 18 months. Oh, my God. I thought you were going to say days. For free. Yeah, no. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, yeah, you know, to tell a survivor who they finally got the courage to call us, no matter whether it was two days or 20 years after their experiences of a tell them that they have to wait 15 months or 18 months it's horrifying it's embarrassing and the province should feel embarrassed um, because we're wearing it as workers and like we're doing as much as we can to provide amazing peer support feminist-based um survivor-led uh counseling and, and supports right and we actually used to do medium-term counseling where we would end with the, the survivor mutually and of course our counseling is free and to maintain it is free these are some of the things we need is like hello money um is that like you know survivors and the counselor could you know and medium-term counseling decide together when it would end you know like so that both people could end it in a good way now we have to move to a 12 session model and of course we make a lot of exceptions like for more sessions or or whatever but because the waiting list is so long so again we're doing as much as we can do on our part to funnel through survivors into this quote-unquote healing system to be able to offer some support through the healing journey because we know that this thing doesn't end at 12 weeks you know you're cured like it's all good like survivors know i don't have to tell them that you know your survivorship comes up when you have kids it comes up when you have a new lover it comes up when you get a new job it comes up when you're like and it's nice to have somebody you can like who knows your story who believes you and knows you a little bit and be like hey can i like talk to you right now like i'm just going through this thing or nothing happened today and i still need to talk and like can you make time for that and it's hard it's more hard than ever to be constantly saying no to like the girth of people because we know sexual assaults haven't increased in any way it's a it's a narrative that has changed around sexual assault and one of those things is like you can talk about it openly the media is talking about it openly and so people are feeling weird triggered and they don't want to talk to anybody like their mom or their dad or their teacher because that the still stigma still 
is there. They want to talk pe- talk to people who get it. And those people are being tapped out because the government has refused in the Ontario context to do anything about augmenting it, even though there was a plan. And even though there was all sorts of stuff that proved that this was needed, you know, and now the PC government is stalling and stalling and stalling, not giving us any information and like um, telling us that particularly Caroline Mulroney is telling us that they're reviewing, um, you know, they're reviewing efficiencies within the organization, reviewing efficiencies within the work, you know, but they don't have a a gender-based violence lens, you know, not the same one that the the liberals had less than a year ago. So what they, they don't even understand gender because they think that there are only two genders and uh, they've like completely obliterated and insulted like every non-binary two-spirit and trans person in Ontario by way of all the other stuff that's happened this, you know, in the last, like, not even one year of PCs being in power. And so I don't really trust that their gender-based violence lens is going to really result in more support for survivors, all survivors of sexual assault, you know, or intimate partner uh, violence survivors, you know? So it's just, like, it's super intense because there's this piece of, like, oh, yeah, they're trying to do stuff or they're working, you know government for the people or whatever but why didn't they just give us the money when it was promised already yeah. all the research had been done all the work had been done we needed that money like oh yesterday like <laughs> before, way before the, even the announcement was made right, right. like there was still a, there's always been a waiting list so now that it's 18 months it's like super uh you know appalling when it was only seven months or three months it wasn't appalling like you know what i mean so there's always been a waiting list. There's always been needs. There's always been survivors hidden out there. There's always been people who are too scared to come forward to get support. And so their mental health has been impacted. Their ability to work is impacted. Their communities are impacted. Their kids are impacted. We know this from trauma, but we wouldn't say that to somebody who experienced a car crash and broke a leg. Hey, go back to work after two weeks with your broken leg. Like, you know, like... We would say, hey, you gotta, you gotta probably take some weight off that leg because it's not gonna heal properly if you walk around too soon. But that's what we say to survivors, right? And no matter what kind of, because their trauma is not really real, right? And I'm always blown so, away by how much more seriously people seem to take concussions than yes. <laughs> rapes. I'm like, really? I know a concussion's also bad, but like uh, the amount of like energy. And it's ironic. Yeah, and well, it's a, ma- a male sports injury. That's a whole nother topic can't get off on that yeah and it's ironic because trauma affects the brain very similarly yeah so when we hit our heads versus when we've experienced a particular kind of body trauma especially let's talk about the ones that don't leave marks but still like you know mess us up really bad in our hearts and our bodies and our spirits like it's really interesting because the brain pretty much responds the same way so it's actually us who don't know how to validate or hold space for the concussion and the traumatic brain injury and the car crash and the trauma of like cancer or like, or the trauma of surgery, you know, like why do we hire Karai's which traumas are, are more valid and which ones are less, right? Like, cause ultimately they all affect us very much, simil- very similarly. The body doesn't necessarily know this trauma versus this trauma, but it does know that there's healing to be done, you know? And so that's what's the impact, you know, is when we can't access that healing in a good way. 
are you doing any kind of activism during this time period to kind of draw more public attention to what's going on and to these this like lack of resources you want to talk about the kind of activism your your group does because I've witnessed some of it in action I think it's great but I want people to know about what you guys yeah. do. yeah I mean well I mean in general always right like we're, we're we're badass bitches we're not scared to say what we think we can do to make this world better, especially for survivors. And, and as we know, survivors touch every community, sexual assault touches every community. Like there's not one group that hasn't experienced it. So otherwise I need to be figuring out like how to replicate what they're doing, you know, like, so it, it really is like in this way, nonpartisan, non-raced, even though we know that certain communities are experiencing higher levels because of certain experiences of oppression. Right. Um, but in the context of uh, the funding denial by the PC, the current PC government, I would say it's really, I, activists are trepidatious because there's things that are playing itself out. Like rape crisis centers across Ontario are like scared. There's like three levels of things that are happening, I would say. One, we're doing nothing because people are scared that, that the PCs, particularly like the, the government currently in power in Ontario, will take away our funding or defund us. Like, we're actually scared. You know what I mean? Like, that's a great place to empower yourself from, is fear. We, so we fear walking the streets at night, and now we fear the government is going to take away what little services we have left for survivors. Hooray. Like, that's super cool. And so, like, the fact that they're letting that be a thing is just, you know, appalling to me. The second thing is uh, working within. You know, so um, sadly, I said to the HuffPost, I don't know, last November, I would, and you know, I'll say the same thing to you, Kelly. If I had gotten the money in May, I wouldn't be having this podcast right now. I would be supporting a survivor. I'd be in counseling. I'd be on the line. I'd be doing something different. I would be actually being able to move forward in the movement to end sexual violence. But no, I'm begging the government to see us, believe us, like say that we matter again. So it's not a new fight, but it's certainly a boring one. And so what uh, folks are having to do is, you know, put this push-pull of like, hey, we don't want to fight with the government, but this money is unprecedented, so it's worth doing something about. So let's meet with our local NPP, whether they're NDP or whether they're PC. Let's try to get a meeting with uh, Caroline Mulroney. Let's try to do some things. And so, you know, I, I, I did a press conference in December at Queen's Park because Suze Morrison and her amazing team, uh, Toronto Central uh, member of provincial parliament, super dope, super cares about women, uh, actually supported us in trying to get some, you know, media attention to this issue because, of course, it affects so many things. It affects crime. It affects poverty. It affects healthcare, sexualized violence, or violence in general, right? And so working with some like-minded government peoples, absolutely, they are out there, and also trying to do a little bit of a respectful push to get some communication or information from the PCs, and then outside stuff. So... You know, I've done lots of media interviews around the gender-based violence, uh, like uh, the gender-based violence action plan to try to get this money to put some pressure externally uh, to get answers, to get this money to all rape crisis centers across Ontario, um, social media um, 
you know, campaigns last year. I think we did a We Believe Survivors and hashtag Survivors Can't Wait. So if you follow those um, hashtags, you can see some of the, the different stuff, whether it was like, you know, everyone posting on the same day type of stuff or like media articles or like, you know, different links or places you could point yourself into directions around finding supports or finding information about everything that's been going on. Um, and then, you know, we are actually sitting together. We, we've had to create a committee, you know, again, another not chosen choice of what we're doing with our time. Cause I think we would rather do something innovative and amazing with survivors, not like always pushing against the government, which can be like a really sad, disheartening, losing battle, um, to you know, sit in meetings together and come up with article writing, content creation, uh, like different things that we're doing. Like right now, this is one thing that the center is allowing me to do is taking time out of my day to have an amazing podcast conversation moment with you, you know? So, and these, yeah. And, but also thank you for helping us build tools because we don't have the capacity to make a documentary and do our podcast and write our blogs because we've got an 18 month waiting list. So it's, you know, it's really, it's, we really do. We need, like-minded allies and and we are coming together more than ever so that's really amazing uh, i think that's really important and critical but i think the government needs to wear some of this energy we are tired we've been doing this for a long time and we've been wearing stories of survivors for a long time and yeah we care but to do it for free forever not okay so we need to actually support like you said at the beginning of this conversation a structural and institutional Support to the healing journey of survivors because them doing it alone, it's, it's not okay. Not in a wealthy, like a, a privileged community like the Ontario community. It is shameful that non-binary, trans, indigenous, black, women, cis, not, not, you know, like kids, young youth have to wait on basic things like support. And then just because we're having to do these activism out of the sort of outside not within but without you know outside of of these governmental parameters like more grassroots organizing again it's taking time away from revolutionary work we could do in communities that that is more supportive to our healing journeys because just fighting for the money even if we got that money tomorrow which would be amazing i would be shocked i would be surprised I would be super happy, absolutely, but I don't know to what cost because he's cutting everybody. So it would be really hard to take the money because, you know, Indigenous people are getting cuts and TDSB are getting cuts and all these kinds of things. So it's very complicated. But if we did get the money tomorrow, it still wouldn't be enough. It still would only be like, oh, we can hire one person. Oh, we can maybe do some social media stuff. That would be cool. Like, you know, we wouldn't. it wouldn't be like so much that it would eliminate the the waiting, the 18 month waiting list to like a one day waiting list. It wouldn't do that, you know? So it still is like only giving us that money, like to change things from like 2008, like it wouldn't move us forward very much. So, you know, it's like, I think with the piece, with the liberal government in, in the last four years prior to this government, what I saw that was really heartening and amazing was that there was this ongoing dedication and, and energy to ending sexual violence across Ontario and that they wanted to talk about it in a multiplicity of ways and they wanted to move it forward. Jungle Meshi wasn't okay. And so it was like, let's actually have bigger conversations and movements around 
working with schools and universities, working with nonprofits to do this work, working with governments and reporting and police, like you were mentioning earlier, right? And so that's not even happening with this government. They have such a, a, a narrow view of this stuff that it's like I feel like I I am in the, the 1994 curriculum or whatever year oh it is, gosh. you know, like, right? Like, it's like, okay, so let's talk about this all without any real context of like what it is to be in 2018 right now. 2019. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, like, so it's, it's really... I think we have to do a lot of personal work and they don't have to do much and that's hard, you know? And I think what the government must not, what they must not be failing to grasp is just how much this impacts everyone beyond the survivor themselves. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, how many, so some of these, obviously some of the survivors are going to hear 15 month wait and they're never going to come back. And they're gonna exactly. they're gonna carry that pain and that trauma with them. They're gonna mm-hmm. how is that gonna affect their productivity in society? How is that gonna affect mm-hmm. their like family relationships? How are they gonna pass that mm-hmm. pain, pain on to their children? You know what is the impact mm-hmm. on their social environment gonna be from that if it's not healed in some ways? And not everybody can afford private counseling private counseling is in my opinion just ridiculously out of reach for most people mm-hmm, it's it is. so expensive yeah. and people who are experiencing the highest levels right yeah like, and they're usually in the so most absolutely. need so it's incredibly it, yeah. you know it's incredibly uh, impactful on it impacts the entire society and it like keeps on going and going and going if it's never addressed so mm-hmm. it's just it's and it's hard for the people counseling too. That's another thing, you know, if you're backlogged, you know, the people that are working that are counseling, the volunteers that are there, they're getting overwhelmed. They're carrying, you know, these people's stories inside their inside their personal um uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inside them emotionally kind of, you know, they're taking that on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard work. It's taxing. Um, and they need break. Mm-hmm. They need breaks too. And so, it's just really one area that I would love to see the resources increased in is for the counselors, um, and mm-hmm. for those services. So, for people listening that want to do something or want to help, what would what do you recommend they do in the Ontario context? Should they write to someone? Like, what well, should people do? <laughs> Well, before, yeah, and I'll answer that, but I wanted to give it a, a very concrete example, yes. you know, like of what you're saying. So Bill 40, 148, this amazing bill, multiple different things that were included in this bill, but one of them was if you experience intimate partner violence or sexualized violence and you disclose to your employer, you get to take five days off paid or 10 days off unpaid with no implications. You will not lose your job. You will not get in trouble. Like, it is a valid reason if you experience violence that you can take time off of work. I mean, the crap thing is you obviously have to disclose, but this is the hope that more employers are open to hearing that disclosure. And you don't have to lie and say you're sick or you don't have to come in and say you're sick after two days and you come in after two days and you're not well, because but you're too worried about not getting paid. You know what I mean? So like, but then now... Dofo wants to take, he doesn't want to take away the five days or 10 days per se, but he wants to make the entire thing unpaid. So if you then do the hard thing of disclosing to your employer, 
you're, it's going to cost you five days work or 10 days work. Right. So like, why would you do that? If you're living, you know, it just, you're a person who works at, you're a racialized immigrant who works at Tim Hortons and get harassed by somebody at your workplace and you can't even take the time off and get paid for five days. You and know, then, like, what are we? And then you have even less money to pay a counselor or a therapist. Exactly. And so these are all the social, uh, you know, work, familial, personal impacts. This is just one example of them, right? And how many things it touches in a person's life when they could just want, all they want to do is care for themselves after trauma, right? So, I mean, you know, I think it's a, a really tricky thing. One thing is that people need to listen to Slut or Not yes. uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because it's amazing work that's happening here and it's ongoing work touching on this issue and the multiplicity of dynamic ways that sexualized violence is impacting our lives and our days, right? And it's impacting all of us, as you said, right? So listen to the podcast. I would say also understand the issue and understand it from a place of not just, well, I've never been assaulted, so it doesn't matter to me, but rather you for sure, 100%, nobody, somebody who has. And have you been the person they felt okay to talk to about it? What kind of person do you want to be when people come to you and say that this huge experience has happened in their lives, especially when it's going to be your, ne- your niece or your nephew or your kid, like they will experience, women, young women will experience high level, they're the ones who experience the highest levels of daily violence between 18 and 25. So someone, be the person that they want to tell something to and that they don't regret it. They in fact actually feel really good after the interaction that you have with them when they were courageous enough to tell you, be that person, figure out what it takes to be that person. What does it take, right? Because that's a huge thing. Because we're, as counselors, we train, we do all these things to be that person, right? But people who experience sexualized violence uh, are hugely impacted by their first point of contact. So if that first person that they go to and say, hey, this happened to me, I was a kid, I was an adult, whatever situation, and that person doesn't believe them, they almost never go and reach out to anybody else ever again. So don't be the person that they never reach out to again, right? I would say, you know, if we can, if you have the wherewithal in your world to go to your local MPP and talk about why haven't sexual assault centers been funded what are you waiting for if you can go to your local mpp and shoot them an email or shoot them a call and say hey why haven't they be funded like this is not okay that would do a huge thing for us in the actual movement to get this money at least then the government would have to say okay we're not funding you okay we are funding you okay we're not funding you because they haven't given us any answer and that that precarious place of not, not being able to plan, not be able to do things in a good way is impacting us nine months later almost, right? Since we thought when we were going to get the money. So those are just three things. I, I could think you could do a lot more personally, but I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But, uh, you know, figure out how we can, like you said, instead of like people like counselors or people like you who care, we're the only ones who are shouldering the stories and, and the politics and the activism Like, figure out how you can shoulder that a little bit too, right? Whether it's, you know, communicating with your MPP or believing a survivor and not making a a crude comment about how it was their fault, you know? Do your work, you know? And I promise it'll benefit you and all the people around you, you know? It'll make you feel good. It won't make you feel bad. I promise you that. 
That's such good advice to, you know, be that person yeah. that, they, that they need in that moment. And I'm sure for people who don't know who their MPP is, they can go online and figure that out with their address. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a good thing to do, ever, too. <laughs> to be like, who is my MPP? And then, you know, because GPS, they'll yeah. probably, it'll probably be two clicks away, right? So right. across Ontario, yeah, check it out. If what? nothing else, it'll give you information about what's happening in your own community around sexualized violence. That's right. And just, um, I have one more question. And I'm just curious, what made you personally decide to get into this line of work? <sighs> well, I at first I used to think it was because my mom was a survivor of intimate partner violence from my dad for 16 years. And my first eight years, on the planet were riddled with the trauma of my alcoholic dad uh, abusing my mom physically, verbally, emotionally. But as I, I, I came into this work in my 20s as a queer, brown-skinned, Canadian-born, working-class, settler mom, uh, as I came into this work in my early 20s, uh, part of it was because of my own experiences of survivorship. I'm a survivor of sexual assault, rape, and intimate partner violence. And my last sexual assault uh, was when I was 29 and I was working here. Oh, no, I'm sorry so, to hear that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was, it was a, it's an interesting journey being a, a counselor while you experience sexual, sexual assault uh, in your 20s, because that's when you experience it, like the high levels of 20 20 somethings experiencing like sexualized violence right and so and it was like from a from a demographics point of view it made a complete sense that I did this happened I just happened to have this unique experience at the time of experiencing sexual assault while being a counselor at a rape crisis center you know so I, I but that's the reason I stayed also is that there's a huge community here it is not just about us as, oh, you're so you're a survivor, like stand over there in your confidential quiet space. We never talk. In fact, survivors are just humans who've gone through this crap experience, who are dynamic individuals who shared and taught me so many ways that have helped me on my own healing journey. And they're our energies, our, our uh, uh, dedication to love and healing has kept me doing gen- the, the work of gender-based violence. Uh, in Toronto for almost 20 years. I'm turning 40. I started doing this work when I was 22. Uh, This community is so diverse and so amazing. I've had to do so much learning to stay in it. And I've also have had many opportunities like this one to share and learn and create relationships that that go on for so long uh, that are much bigger than our experiences of sexualized violence, you know? So that's why I got, that's kind of how I got here, but that's why I stay here too. Well, I think it's the, you know, some of the most amazing work you can possibly be doing. And it's a tremendous gift to the people that you work with and the people in the center and to the people of Toronto. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you guys are out there doing it. Like I, you know, I I watched you guys um, come for the court watch and I watched you guys organize with the demonstrations around uh, the trial that we followed in Slutternut um, with Mandy Gray and also mm-hmm. with Giangameshi. And it means so much to the women that are testifying in court against their abusers, against their um, 
rapist. Yeah. It means so much for you guys to be there. Like, I can't, I don't think people even realize, um, the kind of, the kind of support that provides somebody. Um, it's just tremendous. And I'm so glad you guys are out there doing it. And I, well, I definitely, thank you. I definitely hope that the, the PC government can get a clue and put their, put the money where it needs to go. Um, yeah, and just because <laughs> <laughs> it's such important work. Um, do you want to? Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add, or any uh, resources that you would point people to? Like, where can they go to find more out about the center and about the crisis line? And I'll include links as well in our show notes. But is there anything you'd like people to take a look at online? Or yeah, well, if you need support, you can always call us on our 24-hour crisis line at 416-597-8808. If you just want to donate to us, we're having our last and our 26th annual bowl happening on March 2nd in Rexdale. So f- figure out how to donate to us. You can always donate to us at canadahelps.org um, through our portal there. And uh, yeah, like, you know, just... It's hard to keep sexualized violence or survivors in your mind all the time. But just remember, like, it, it, even if you've never felt it before, like, it's hard. Remember how hard it is. And, you know, everybody out there, because 50% of us who are listening are survivors, at least, if not more. Thank you for caring. Thank you for listening. And thank you for doing everything you, you have to do to, to be on your healing journey and, and to stay on that journey, you know, because it is, it's really hard to keep on being after we've experienced violence. So I want to just say shout out to all of you survivors out there and much love. And thank you for everything you're doing to stay, to stay with us and to thrive and to heal. So thanks. Oh, thank you too. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks Kelly. You can also find the show notes related to this episode on our site and more episodes of Slutter Nut the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and on our website at www.slutternut.ca. Thank you so much. And please remember, if someone discloses a sexual assault to you, please listen and support them.